Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 75 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Kick-Ass from 2010. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we're joined today by special guest Adam N.P. Hello, Adam. Hi there. How you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Now, you were one of the first people to sign up for a Cage Club movie, and you picked Kick-Ass right away. What do you love about this movie? Oh, man. It's exactly what every kid wants to do. It's... <laughs> He becomes a superhero. It's like, I've always wanted to do that. And it's a very kind of realistic way of showing what you would do if you actually decided to become like a superhero. What I really like about this movie, and we'll sort of, I mean, I don't want to start jumping into the movie yet. I sort of want to bring the discussion up first. There's sort of a voiceover really early on. The kid who plays Kick-Ass is talking, he's, he's wondering, like, why don't more people want to be superheroes? How come nobody's ever tried to be a superhero? Well, I don't know. Probably because it's fucking impossible, dipshit. Why? Putting on a mask <laughs> and helping people? How's that impossible? Well, that's not superhero, though. How's that super? Super's like being stronger than everybody and flying and shit. That's just hero. No, it's not even hero. It's just fucking psycho. Mm. Hello, Bruce Wayne? You didn't have any powers? Yes, but he had all the expensive shit that doesn't exist. Nope. I thought you meant, like, how come nobody does it in real life? Yeah, Todd, that's what I meant. Dude, if anybody did it in real life, they'd get their ass kicked. They'd be dead in, like, a day. A day. That's a good question. I mean, aside from the fear of bodily harm, like, it's the ultimate childhood dream, right? Yeah, I totally agree with that. If you didn't get the crap beat out of you all the time, you don't have superpowers. <laughs> if you didn't get the crap beat out of you, more people would, would be superheroes. Yeah, I feel like it's total wish fulfillment. They used to call it Peter Pan syndrome, perhaps, and, like, superheroes and Spider-Man syndrome is, like, the new craze, I, I feel. It captures that blend of wonder and reality really well. It's a terrific satire on the entire, not just the entire genre of film, but you know the comics and the stories as well. So yeah, this this movie just rocks. And there's so much to talk about with this movie. Like we could talk about this. Like this could be the longest Cage Club episode we ever do, just because this movie is great. And we could, there's so many layers here. And the way that you know Matthew Vaughn directs it, and the way that he wrote it with his writing partner, it's all so good. But the reason we're here today. The reason we've been recording all these episodes is obviously for Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage plays in this movie Big Daddy, who is a former cop with a young daughter, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who plays Hit Girl. They're not on screen that much. They're sort of like kind of a B story that sort of merges its way into the main story as the movie goes on. It's almost more compelling than the Kick-Ass story. I mean, the Kick-Ass story is sort of the vehicle that gets us here, and that's sort of the childhood dream. But I kind of wish this was a movie like solely about Big Daddy and Hit Girl because their relationship and what they're doing is just amazing. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's I, I think it's interesting how his personal vendetta against the, the drug lord, D'Amico, it's how he like just interacts with his daughter and how they work as like a family, but they end up killing people. So she's like totally fucked up, but it, they work as a family unit. Whereas if he had like done this exact same thing except for something that was like really good... She could be something awesome, like she could be a gymnast or something. She just ends up now killing people with a filthy mouth. <laughs> yeah, there's a great dynamic between uh, Big Daddy and Hit Girl here. And yeah, I feel like less is more with them, too. I'm almost glad like we don't have an entire film just about them. I feel like when they come in, they sort of take over. And they also sort of represent like the idealistic stream of what Dave is all about. Right? Dave is sort of the more everyman guy like us, but then these guys are like another level. They're the big leagues, and it's cool to have them representing that because they are sort of the more take on Batman and Robin, right? Dave is like yeah. kick-ass, he's an original hero, and these guys are clearly modeled off of something that came before. 
Batman and Carrie Kelly, maybe. They're kind of like the same thing. I guess that Jim Carrey tries to be in Kick-Ass 2, which is a horrific abortion of a movie and just garbage from start to finish. We won't be talking about that. (laughs) This movie's kind of like an origin story for Hit Girl, as it is also for Kick-Ass and Red Mist. I kind of wish, and I think the boat is, the ship is kind of sailed, I kind of wish we had a Big Daddy origin story, even if it's something more like, like in the Chronicles of Riddick universe, like how there's that middle sort of half-hour movie between Pitch Black and Chronicles of Riddick. You know, I just want to know more about Big Daddy, because it's partially the Cage performance, but it's also just the way he's written. I think he is so interesting that we, we sort of enter this world, and he's already kind of an established crime fighter who knows what he's doing, and this is time for him to introduce his daughter to it. And we kind of get a sense of why he's doing it and sort of his origin story. But it only takes up about 30 seconds or a minute. Like, I'd love to see him become Big Daddy. I would actually disagree with that just because the movie does have a sense of, like, realism. Like, kind of like, what would life be like if you decided to become a vigilante? And now there's already somebody who is an established crime fighter. But I feel like that would be such a big disconnect. Big Daddy and Pit Girl are the established crime fighters. But they kind of bring it from a small town realistic thing to a kind of grandiose super thing if they've already established that he's a superhero and he has a crime background that was a fine enough judgment whereas if they showed the origin story it might not actually be realistic and it would kind of be kind of forced i feel like if they tried to explain how he became a superhero it wouldn't be believable but if you just start off saying oh yeah this is what he does he dresses up and beats the shit out of people i think that's a little bit more realistic than trying to explain why he like where he came from so we have his background of what he wants to do and now we have his present of what he's currently doing and I feel like you don't even really need to bridge those two together because that might not actually be realistic. Yeah, and, and I think like we get just the right amount of his origin here, and I love the way that we get it, too. It's in the style of the actual comic book, drawn as panels and such, so it's a cool wall that they broke there. And I also feel like we've seen Big Daddy's backstory a million times in movies and they're sort of playing off that right like he's very much sort of charles bronson in death wish or someone to that magnitude in a way they're playing off of that generic action hero it could have been a little redundant to blend that genre with the superhero genre look guys i just want more nicholas cage's big daddy Can you just give me that, please? <laughs> look you're both making good points but i just want more cage's big daddy that's all i want just give me that granted do you think um, he ever just uh walked around the apartment in the Big Daddy outfit. Like, they always show him suiting up to go fight. Do you think he ever just wore it just to, like, wear it? I feel like he probably wore it just to wear it when he first got it. Mm-hmm. Like, when Kick-Ass gets his in the mail and he's in his room just in the mirror, like, pretending, like, the shadow box with the mirror. I feel like maybe for the first couple of weeks after he got it, he was like, all right, like, you know, putting this on, it look pretty good. I feel like once you sort of go out there and get your ass kicked in it the first time, it's, it's a little bit different. You might not want to invoke those kind of memories or feelings of sort of danger or terror when you're just in your safe space. Yeah, and I sort of had images of costume tests like we saw in the Superman documentary where he's probably there in the room with Matthew Vaughn, like, trying on different armor and different helmets and, you know, is this too Batman? Is this not enough Batman? Or are these pieces actually, can we go order these online and put this together like, you know, a real person could? And so those are the things popping up in my head. And, uh, you know, he probably put it on and just to get a little more comfortable, wore it for an hour (laughs) or two, I'm sure, once it came all together. Because he looks really comfortable in this film and yeah. his presence he creates two completely different characters very superman clark kent i mean batman and bruce wayne don't even act this differently when they're separate <laughs> but he does a great job phys- 
physically too when he's in that costume he is different than when he's out of it so a couple things about that costume test or the you know the costume fitting from what i read online when they were doing the costume fitting, Cage just started saying his lines like Adam West. Apparently, Matthew Vaughn hated the way that Christian Bale talked in the Dark Knight movies so much that he was like, all right, Cage, like, go for it. Like, I want to go as far away from this Christian Bale that's uber-realistic Batman as we can get. Like, Just go over the top. But the other thing that's kind of amazing, and I think that this is something that we've run into a few times maybe with Trapped in Paradise or another movie that I can't think of off the top of my head, that Cage got to come up with his character's disguise. And apparently his disguise, the way he describes it, is that his sort of his Clark Kent, Damon McCready has a mustache, but Big Daddy has an even bigger mustache. <laughs> so so I like that for the Wicker Man, he wanted to have this huge mustache that he could twirl. In this movie, he sort of finally gets his wish. He's got this crazy big mustache. <laughs> I always like that because if you've ever seen Arrested Development, every time he needed to go into a costume, he would put on a fake mustache. It looked obviously ridiculous. In this, you have somebody who has a mustache, and it's like, how can I hide this mustache without shaving it off? Make it bigger. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I also loved the idea. I was thinking, like, he grew the mustache to hide himself when he's out of the costume, you know? And then the conundrum was, oh, wait, I have to put this mask on. Like, how do I do... Okay, mustache extensions. But I definitely love the Adam West impression. With everything this movie's doing, commenting on superheroes from every decade, from Batman 66 to Christian Bale Batman, not only is it fit because it's so different, but it just works to sort of clear the air, break it a little... Like, it brings a levity to some of the horror and the action and things like that that I feel is very much needed. Like, it comments on the absurdity of everything, too. You know, like, (laughs) the last thing you would expect Batman to sound like is this, especially in a day like today. There's scenes where he sort of talks more normally, but I think it's sort of the most pronounced, like, when he's most, quote-unquote, in character, when he first meets Red Mist towards the end of the movie, and he's just, like, very stilted, almost overdoing it. And I don't know if he's just nervous, like the character is nervous to meet Red Mist, or if that's just like a choice that Cage makes that this is just how he presents himself to heroes for the first time. It's such a delight just to hear him talk like that, because we know that when he is sort of in his Clark Kent mode, he is this sort of mild-mannered, sort of Midwestern kind of guy. And then when he puts on the suit, he's just sort of amplified into this still sort of mild-mannered guy, but who also will be able to kick your ass. He goes from one to the other seamlessly. It's pretty cool. And Joey, uh, you pointed something out to me that I didn't quite put together, but I definitely see some H.I. McDonough in his yeah. in, in his secret identity here, absolutely. The way he says, like, <laughs> child and stuff like yeah. that just brings me back. So you have to wonder, I mean, I hope that this doesn't, for the way that Ed's story, if, if this is a continuation of Raising Arizona, I would hate for the way the Ed character goes out. I can sort of see this as a way of, like, they give back Nathan Jr. and they both kind of grow up run into problems and Ed kills herself. Like, that's sort of the sad origin story here. McCready's wife dies, and in spite of her death, Hit Girl is born, so out of death comes life. And so it's sad that I don't want to see the Ed character go like that, but it it is sort of feel like H.I. McDonough grown up, and then they finally did have their kid. It just feels so similar to the same character. Maybe just the accent, 
but also sort of seems like the mannerisms and the way that they sort of approach the world. Well, Adam sort of hit on something a little earlier, you know, this father-daughter relationship, right? Like in, in any other movie, it would almost be a father raising a single daughter. But in this one, it's almost like the professional, you know, <laughs> like Leon and the little hit girl and everything like that. But all that care comes across. Like this relationship is completely fully functional in a weird way, even though it's completely psychotic and like what he's doing is child abuse and all that kind of stuff. But in the moment, it just feels natural. You could also say that he's he's kind of selfish too, though, just because, yeah, he does. you can tell that he genuinely cares for her and he loves her and he wants to take care for her, but he also uses her to get revenge. You, you see how much he loves her, but you can also see how he's being really selfish with it. He risks her life and he risks his life to get revenge for this vendetta. As much as he loves her, he wants his revenge more, which I think is a weird thing about this character, too. Uh, that is kind of interesting, just because, like, you know, I was, I was thought back to Batman and Robin and the how they depend on each other. And in this one, like, she's just a tool for him, almost. And he has a line later on where he's like, the mob guy, he took Mindy's childhood not me but it's like dude you're not doing anything to really try and forge a childhood for her either you know like you're not really being a good father you know i'm not gonna stop not till D'Amico and his whole damn operation are burnt to ashes and buried it ain't gonna bring her back damn this is not the life for mindy You owe that kid a childhood. I'll tell you who owes her a childhood. Frank D'Amico! It seems like she's willing to go along with this, and maybe that's just because she loves her dad, but it does seem like she's on board. Like, she wants to be a crime fighter. She sort of bought into it. He does sort of go a little bit above and beyond that. Maybe, I mean, she is just a little girl. Like, she's kind of afraid of what she sort of has to do. And the first introduction we have to her is Cage shooting her in the chest with a bullet while she's wearing a bulletproof vest. You can see that she, at one point, had agreed to it, but she's sort of nervous. Like, she wants to make her dad happy. And I do think, deep down in her heart, she knows that this is sort of the right thing to do and that this is something that she wants to do. But I think that it's, like, that extra level that he pushes her to that's a little bit, like, that's where the darkness comes in. And that's where it's kind of, like, he's using her as a tool. Like, she's just there to sort of advance his mission and get revenge. Daddy, I'm scared. Come on, Mindy, honey. Be a big girl now. There's nothing to be afraid of. Is it gonna hurt bad? Oh, child. Only for a second, sugar. A handgun bullet travels at more than... 700 miles an hour. 700 miles an hour. So at close range like this, the force is gonna take you off your feet for sure, but it's really no more painful than a punch in the chest. Why are you getting punched in the chest? You're going to be fine, baby doll. How was that? Not so bad. Kind of fun, huh? Now you know how it feels. You won't be scared when some junky asshole pulls a Glock. I wouldn't have been scared anyways. That's my girl. All right, up you get. Come on. Two more rounds, and then home. Again? Uh-huh. Look, only if we can go by the bowling alley on the way back. The bowling alley. Yeah, and ice cream after. Huh. Okay, two more rounds. No wincing, no whining, and you got yourself a deal, young lady. Yeah, I'm going to get a hot fudge sundae. Good call, baby doll. What I would have liked to have seen, and, and it wouldn't be possible in the movie, but what would he have done if 
they actually took out Frank D'Amico. If he didn't die, if, like, if the mission was complete, what would he have done afterwards? Because I feel like this is something you just can't turn off. If you work your entire life for a goal and actually achieve that goal, what next? I think, and that's a good word to end that sentence on, because just a couple of movies ago, we talked about the movie Next, where Cage plays a magician who gets to see the future, and the FBI sort of wants to use him to stop these horrific crimes. So I think that that's sort of the same thing that we would see here, that, you know, they take down Frank D'Amico, he lives through it, they're still okay, they want to keep going. He's achieved his revenge, he's finally sort of complete. I feel like he's still a broken person, still not able maybe to get over his wife's death, and there's always going to be someone next to take out. There's always going to be some other big bad guy. The only way that's ever going to end is by one of them dying. And so, you know, whether he dies to Frank D'Amico or someone down the line, I think that he's the kind of guy who is broken and sort of sees the world in a way that, like, he's the only way sort of humanity can be saved, maybe. I feel the same way. I feel like that is very much like Batman, too. You know, it's like once he caught his parents' killer, he didn't stop. You know, it just sort of fueled him more. And it was like, I could do this now. And then, you know, he catches the Joker and he keeps going, you know. And I kind of feel like Big Daddy would almost be that to an extreme. Like, he'd start going out, taking out corrupt government officials and things like that. And he'd really be on the most wanted list and yeah he it would become a death wish or like you know he, he he couldn't be stopped you know his mission would never end is the way i sort of take it and i think that kind of goes back to just like the whole delusionary aspect of thinking you can do this in the first place like i don't really get the impression mindy knows any better like she kind of feels brainwashed to me to a degree, especially with the way her father uses comic book imagery to show these guys aren't real people, they're just pictures that we're trying to take out. Other ways that he does to dull the reality of what they're going through. You know, there's the whole concept of dressing up like a superhero in the first place is a way to sort of remove yourself from the reality of what you're doing. And she is performing some terribly horrific acts of violence that a little girl should, not only should they not do, they shouldn't even watch in a movie. You're telling me that it's it's not right for a little girl to curse somebody in a car compactor <laughs> i gotta tell you well maybe that because it, it reminded it reminded me of superman 3 and, and i, and I love superman I 3 the interesting thing sort of narratively that they get to in the second movie is that she just wants to be a normal girl that that she sort of lived this life where she doesn't have a childhood and it's like you were saying earlier mike when he has that argument with marcus his ex-partner uh, marcus is like you know you stole her childhood he's like no frank d'amico stole her childhood he's like he's very like he does not see that he is doing her any disservice but in the second movie she just sort of she just wants to go to school and be like a normal girl she longs for another life but i think that as long as big daddy is around as long as this guy is in her life she's not going to be able to live that normal life so she just sort of accepts this as her only reality. I haven't actually seen Kick-Ass 2. That's for the best. <laughs> In this movie, at least, she's a little girl. Even if it's not what she wants, she doesn't realize that she doesn't want it. Just as a little kid, she does want to make her dad happy, but it's the only thing she knows as of now. Whereas sometime in the future, you become a teenager, you realize that it might be something you don't want to do. And like as a teenager, is the first time you might start to see things differently and might have a different take or see where your life is headed and want to do something different. Whereas a kid, you don't really have that kind of foresight. That's pretty interesting. Like that, that I never really took that angle before, but it, now it makes a lot of sense because it makes me think of like child actors or you know when your parents force you to take piano lessons and, and just things like that. And now this is like on a grander scale of it. Parents have 
an idea of what they think you want, but then you grow up and you realize you want to be your own person and have your own ideas of, of what that means. So, like, early on in the movie, after he shoots her in the chest, they go out to a bowling alley, which we've talked about bowling in so many cage movies, <laughs> sort of where, they, where it has to wind up. He's talking to her, and he's like, what do you want for your birthday? And at first she says that she wants a cuddly, fluffy puppy. Cage is, like, sort of aghast, and then she's like, oh, no, I'm just messing with you. You know, I want guns, I want knives. So, have you thought a little more about what you might want for your birthday? Can I get a puppy? You want to get a dog? Yeah, a cuddly, fluffy one. And a Bratz movie star makeover, Sasha. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you, Daddy. Look, I love a French Bay Model 42 butterfly knife. Oh, child. <laughs> you always knock me for a loop. You know what? What? We're going to get you two. Yeah? Two? One battle song, two battle song. That's what you get. I really wonder if that's sort of her trying to break out, like, hey, Dad, like, you know, it would be nice if I kind of had, like, a normal life, testing the waters and seeing how he reacts. And then when he reacts so poorly, she's like, all right, I guess not this year, maybe next year. Maybe after, you know, we take care of this, maybe he'll let me have a puppy, maybe he'll let me be, like, a little girl again. Yeah, I could see that. But I could also see that he does treat her like a kid just because they are bowling and eating ice cream. So it's, it's not like she doesn't have any semblance of a regular life. They do. She just also happens to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it also made me think of the moment towards the end where they're drinking hot chocolate together, you know? And that's just, like, so adorable, you know? That's just a father-daughter thing. But then they get a call, and it's like, oh, suit up. You know, we'll have this when we get home. Business takes precedent. And he tries to give her some semblance of a childhood while also training her to be this killer at the same time. I guess she's allowed to be a child as long as that doesn't take precedence over their ultimate goal. You know, we can have these, like, tender moments. We can drink hot chocolate, but, you know, when business calls, that's number one. The interesting thing, and I want to... The way the cage plays this, I'm not sure exactly how the character feels. I was wondering what you guys think. They show later in the movie that when Kick-Ass sort of becomes nationally known and he's on the news, this sort of superhero thing that Cage and Big Daddy have ostensibly been doing for maybe a couple years now, that at least Frank D'Amico's guys know about him. They see Kick-Ass on the news, Big Daddy says his name should be Ass Kick. He's really good at getting his ass kicked. You know what? Everyone likes Kick-Ass. Did you see the clip? He was actually pretty good. Good at getting his ass kicked. He should call himself Ass Kick instead. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. It's sort of dismissive, but I really wonder if he's just looking down on Kick-Ass or if he's jealous. Like, does he want to be sort of this known crime fighter? Or is he just, like, look at this idiot, like he's doing everything wrong? The, the other thing that I, in the same scene where he's like, oh, he's getting his ass kicked. And then they were like, oh, he's pretty good. Based on that video, he's not good. He, <laughs> like, I, I, I don't see why they ever wanted to work with Kick-Ass because they've been doing this already. They're already taking out drug lords, stealing money, and doing a pretty good job of it and then there's this nerd who has these batons like oh yeah he's doing a pretty good job let's have a part of the team (laughs) no no i don't know quite what to make of that like he shows up at kick-ass's room and calls him ass kick you know (laughs) and it's like he does have this air of we were here first we're doing it right and here you come the rookie he also wants to display like a certain amount of cordial respect honor between heroes no matter what level you're on, just because that's the name of the game, right? He's like, oh, we're good guys and you're a good guy, so let's keep in touch. Let's be friends. I don't know. It just seems like protocol. (laughs) And it does, to a degree, feel like at first, at least, he's doing something he may not necessarily want to be doing because he's a very secretive, very overprotective type of person, and he's 
letting his guard down. I guess I would also go to show that he must see himself more as a superhero than as a cop, just because there wouldn't be that cordial respect amongst heroes if he felt he, he was still within, like, a cop mindset, even if he was working outside of the law. So he must have felt that he was no longer a detective anymore, no longer a cop, but he was just a straight-up superhero, or vigilante as it would be. Yeah, and I, I also believe he wants to try and live up to his name of being a big daddy, you know? Like, maybe he could be a dad to this kid too as well like Mindy and train him well and you know he'll be the daddy of all superheroes one day perhaps and his legacy that'll be that there could be a bit of that going on you know like here's some fatherly advice you know call us first or something do we get a sense do you guys have a sense of how long he's been doing this I mean he went to prison for five years I think and that was like basically from the time that Mindy was born till the time she was five he was in prison She's probably about 10 or 11 in the movie, so he's been out for five or six years. How long has he been Big Daddy? That's a good question. When Kick-Ass, when he went to go to the drug dealer's house to stop him from harassing his girlfriend, Katie, that's when we first met Hit-Girl, and then that's how we got introduced to those characters. Even though it's the first time we see Kick-Ass, we don't know if it's the first time their first drug bust. As later in the movie progresses... Frank was talking to one of his goons. He's like, wait, you mean I have no material on the market? I don't know if that was the last drug dealer or if it was a montage of them killing drug dealers, but that means that if all of the drug dealers were taken out, it must have been over time. But there's always more drug dealers. I don't know if he did this in a very short span of time or if he's been doing it. It's it's really hard to, to judge the time frame. It seems like it's been kind of recent, like within the last year or at least the last fiscal year, because like Frank D'Amico <laughs> seems to be like, shit's going wrong quickly, and like all of a sudden, people are busting up his operation and playing him against the Russians, and this guy comes to him, and he's like, Batman showed up and took everything, and he's like, I didn't say he was Batman, and we get that kind of funny sequence where like, this guy, Frank D'Amico's all big, he has no idea what comic books even mean, you know? So, it, it kind of makes sense, too, when he confuses Kick-Ass with Big Daddy, and he's just looking for anyone dressed as a superhero. And I also love how I get a very Lex Luthor vibe from Frank D'Amico. You know, he's got, like, sure. the bald hair, and it's like, what if Lex Luthor was a family man, too, and had, like, a <laughs> son, and it's very warped. The other thing I would also say for um, the time frame is that Kick-Ass became popular, really popular, and it just wasn't, it wasn't just a viral video. It, he got, he had gotten popular enough to be having his stuff in comic book stores, to p kids were having kick-ass parties, and that kind of popularity doesn't happen overnight. That's true. You can also think that this may have been over a course of a couple of months, because somebody doesn't become a national sensation overnight. Maybe we don't know how long Cage has been Big Daddy, but do we think that he became Big Daddy just to take down Frank D'Amico? Probably, right? I would have to think that because he needed some kind of way to get his daughter on board. The superhero aspect of it was how he was able to get her to do it. Yeah, and I also think himself to a degree, you know, a way to talk himself into it, a way for him to pump himself up to a degree where he could become the type of person to do these violent things that need to be done. What I like, and MP just said that when they're, take, they're doing that drug bust as per Katie's request, what I like about the scene is that we see Cage from across the street take out that last guy to save Hit Girl's life with a sniper rifle. And so we obviously got Cage behind the sniper rifle in Face Off, but we had him just again recently in Bangkok Dangerous. Like, you know, it's sort of been like a decade between him behind the sniper rifle, but it's, it's good to see that he's getting his uh, sniper rifle skills back up to par, you know, a couple movies almost in a row. He needed the experience. He got to level <laughs> up. 
And I also think it, it lets us know that although this dude looks like Batman, he's more or less the comedian when it comes to taking care of business. Yeah. Like, he will kill. No holds barred. I mean, later we see him when he set to the 28 Days Later theme, like you were saying to me last night, oh, Mike, yeah. where it's just he's just stabbing guys and shooting guys, and we'll get there, but he is going to mission accomplish no matter what it takes. You know, no nothing held back. He doesn't mind killing guys. It's not about, you know... Batman just knocking people out and sort of leaving the police, like, he is going to take them out for good. You know, whether it's with a sniper rifle or a knife or a Glock or whatever, guy is out. Don't forget grenades. Or grenades. <laughs> the other thing that we get at that scene of the drug bust is that when they leave the scene and, and Hit Girl is like, we can't go out the front door, like, there's cameras, dummy. And they go across the street. We have Big Daddy pointing to Kick-Ass. And again, I mean, I gotta point out every time that Cage points, right? He's just pointing like, you quiet or I'll kill you. <laughs> like, you know, again, just intimidation caged with that point, even behind the mask, he means business. What strikes me about that moment in particular is his presence. It's like he could play Batman, you know? It yeah. is like the suit makes the man, you know? It's in- incredible. <laughs> like, it made me think back to Michael Keaton and go like, yeah, like, got anyone you need in that suit as long as they can fucking feel it and be it, they are it. Cage just, like, is owning the screen. Is it too late to recast Cage for the Ben Affleck role in the <laughs> Dawn of Justice? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> But yeah, so after this bust, the next time that we see Big Daddy, and we talked about the scene earlier, is when they break into his room, they break into Kick-Ass's room at night, and they're like, look, you're being sloppy, you're leaving taser cartridges behind, you know, I had to reroute your IP, like, we knew exactly where you were, like, what are you doing? I didn't say anything to anyone, I swear. Good move, ass. Kick. Let's keep it that way. You know what this is? It's all the cartridge crap that comes out of your gay little taser when you fire it. You do know the police could have traced this right back to you if they found it. But lucky for you, I picked it up. Thank you. Let's call it insurance. Makes it easier for us to take your word. See, we like you, but we don't trust you. Don't take it personal, though. We don't trust anybody. I rerouted your IP address. Finding you was way too easy. Oh, shit. Shit, I hadn't thought... My God, I... I owe you. You know what? I'm thinking of just shutting my site down anyway. Quitting. I mean, this is... It's fucking insane. I'm in way over my head. It's a shame. You have potential. Your call, but you know we're around if you need us. How do I get a hold of you? You just contact the mayor's office. He has a special signal that shines in the sky. It's in the shape of a giant car. You need us. Put on your website that you're on vacation. We'll find you. Hit girl, back to headquarters. And I think this is kind of like tough love. Like, I think, MP, you were saying earlier that he's kind of a daddy, like this could be his legacy. But it's not tender like it is with Hit Girl. It's like, you kid are an idiot. You're going to get yourself killed or caught or something. Like, you got to get your act together because you are a mess right now. Well, it's also a liability because he saw Big Daddy. So even if he weren't killed, let's say he was picked up by the cops, he now has all of this information on somebody who was an ex-cop. And since there's a mole in the office, if you kick-ass were picked up, you'd be like, oh yeah, Big Daddy, there's this guy, he's going around killing people. You now have a mole with the drug dealers in the police. 
his cover would be blown. The, the fact that Frank D'Amico didn't know who was killing everybody was also a big part of this. So he wanted to make sure there were no loose ends, but he doesn't also want to kill this kid for no reason. I also loved how Kickass is like, I'm out of here, man. Like, you guys are nuts. Like, I didn't sign up for this either, you know? And he kind of is like, no, man, like, you got potential. There's a chance for you and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but what I really get out of this scene is that, like it or not, to steal the line, Kickass just took a step into a much larger world. There are forces that he's going to be forced to deal with because of a choice that he made. It started out as let's have a lot of fun, and now it's going to turn into life and death. Big Daddy is like, he even kind of looks like the Grim Reaper sometimes. Like, he <laughs> is like the manifestation of death here to a degree. Like, he is like elite. But even though he stepped into this bigger world, it's not like Cage is saying, or Big Daddy is saying, you're on your own, kid. He's like, hey, like, if you need us, just set your MySpace status to on vacation and we'll come get you. Which I think is funny. We were talking about this last night. How, like, this movie's only five years old, but, like, in certain ways, how dated it seems. Like, just everybody using MySpace. Like, it's amazing how using technology or using internet things in movies just seems to backfire because things get outdated so quickly. Kickass is like a huge MySpace star. Internet works like dog years. One year in the internet is seven years in real life. So we're like almost, we're, we're not even one year later in, in terms of internet. You know what I mean? Like, this is only five years in MySpace, rest in peace. Oh, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> At least he's immortalized in this and Iron Man, which, Joey, I think I mentioned to you, it makes MySpace feel sort of like the fake comic book version of Facebook. Like, kids in the future are just going to think it's an imaginary made-up <laughs> Mommy, <comics>. what's MySpace? <laughs> it also reminded me of the first National Treasure movie where all the villains used Yahoo and all the good guys used Google. It's like all the, all the comic book characters use MySpace and all the real people use Facebook. The next scene that they're in, we, this is where we find out their backstory. This is when Marcus shows up. And I think, I mean, I know that he's a cop and they sort of downplay it that he's like, you know, I'm like, one of us is still a cop. Like, I know how, I know how to be able to find you. But I feel like this is sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say like it's a, it's a, non-genuine moment, but I feel like Big Daddy is too careful for even a cop to be able to just find their house and then get into his secret padlocked room, right? Since Marcus was his friend in the past, I can see him knowing what he would do and being able to get around it. So I think it's mm. it's not the fact that he's a great cop, it's the fact that he's a great cop and he knew Nick Cage. The only thing that I would not agree with is that I feel like, because Mindy knew the door code, she knew how to get in, she would be safe. I feel like there would become some kind of like saw gun contraption if you tried to open that door without putting that code in. That's what I would feel like. That guy, He should have been shot in the face. Or maybe the code for the door was like Cage's dead wife's birthday or some date that Marcus might know. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get hung up on this too much because it is just sort of a minor moment. The biggest unbelievable thing for me in this scene is that when we hear about Cage's backstory and they said that prison was not a natural habitat for him, like, I beg to differ. Cage has been in prison <laughs> so many times in all of his movies, like, maybe, you know, eight or nine times by now. He seems right at home, and especially, especially if this is H.I. McDonough grown up. Like, H.I. McDonough spent basically his formative years in prison. Like, he should be right at home in prison. Once upon a time, there were two super cops called Daddy and Marcus who were very good at getting bad guys. Frank D'Amico was the baddest guy of them all, and he came up with a plan to get rid of Daddy. Being framed as a drug dealer was the worst possible thing that could have happened to Daddy. Prison was not his natural habitat. He was very upset. 
With Danny in prison, his pregnant wife was all alone and could not cope. But all clouds have a silver lining, and out of her death, Mindy was born. Marcus became the child's guardian, and Daddy started a plan of his very own. Five years later, he left prison, and he was ready. Now it was time for Mindy to get ready too. Yeah, I mean Cameron Poe, uh, you know, <laughs> Caster Archer, or whatever we're gonna call him at that stage in the film. I mean, heck, even in Amos and Andrew, he starts in jail in that movie. Yeah. He should end. Everyone should be in jail for that movie. To be honest, little but, uh, little Junior goes to jail at the end. Yeah, I mean we've we've brought this up a couple times, but like the big moment in this scene is when Marcus says you're robbing her childhood, and he says no, Frank D'Amico was robbing her childhood. And so now that we know as movie watchers sort of what Cage has gone through, what Big Daddy has gone through, you know, basically just trying to get back at Frank D'Amico that he's sort of either set him up or sent him off to jail or whatever, we see the motivation, and he's kind of blinded by his need for revenge, and that's sort of what we've been talking about this whole time, right? About how Cage is so determined to get revenge on Frank D'Amico, and now we finally know why, and it doesn't necessarily justify his actions and robbing Hit Girl of her childhood, but it almost, in a weird sort of warped way, kind of does. You can also think that he has a warped sense of view because he blames Frank D'Amico for his wife's death. In the grand scheme of things, it's not like he killed her. She OD'd. So she was an addict. She was made depressed by Frank D'Amico. But this, this you're jumping through hoops and bounds. Yeah. To, she was an addict. That That's what killed her. So maybe and, he's trying to cope with the fact that his wife was dead and he has now a face to blame on it. But it's really no one's fault but her own. And I really like how this contrasts Kickass and his sort of philosophy on origins and stuff. You know, he's like, my mother died, but she dropped dead at the kitchen table. You don't see me trying to avenge her death or anything like that. Like, it's cool how it sets up different motives and everything. And it's just funny how the adult has the more sort of childish reasoning behind it and takes it to the extreme more seriously, where his delusion is just much more full-fledged. Yeah, absolutely. Now that we sort of know crystal clear why Big Daddy is doing this, I think that narratively we're able to see him... I think this might answer the question we were talking about earlier in terms of timeline, that now that we know why he's doing this all, we sort of see more in terms of his first person, even though we see it through the nanny cam from the warehouse, but we see what Big Daddy's doing kind of in his off hours. That we're not just following Kick-Ass around anymore, the world is kind of opening up, we're able to see more worldviews and first person views, and we see Big Daddy in that warehouse. Frank D'Amico sends out Red Mist to bring in Kick-Ass so they can kill Kick-Ass. But before they can get there, Big Daddy takes out his entire team at this warehouse and sets the warehouse on fire. And we see it all in like this beautiful, wordless scene that's set to the 28 Days Later theme. And it reminded me kind of of The Matrix. It's just like brutal action without dialogue. It's just like, it's just pure action adrenaline we see just how committed i think big daddy is to this cause 
Yeah, and I also just really like seamless transition from when they go from watching the nanny cam, it goes in, and then you actually see him kicking all that ass. It was yeah. it was really cool. Yeah, that was a wonderful transition, and and I just love the clarity of action. What's going on here? Like Matthew Vaughn is just like a top notch director. You know, I, I would love yeah. I would love someone with his flair and style to do like a Bond movie, but they'll never let let him do it. Probably. Well, he, I mean, he did his own Bond movie. He did Kingsman. He did Kingsman. Kingsman. The best. Yeah, it's the best Bond movie that we could ever ask for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this scene is great. This is like the best Batman scene you could probably ask for, too. I mean, minus the killing and everything. But <laughs> what I love is, like, you know, it takes place at night, but it's very well lit because it's indoors. So you can see the costumes, see all the moves, see all of that. It's just very much like, here it is. We're not trying to hide anything from it. We're not trying to glorify this or make it cool. It's like, this is how brutal it actually can be. It's because of this, I think, I don't know if Marcus, I don't know if the cops have sort of an, uh, a mole in Frank D'Amico's side. But whatever, but Marcus and the cops now know that Frank D'Amico is going to set out to kill Big Daddy. That earlier in the movie, we've sort of been sitting up, that Frank D'Amico's been getting these reports that somebody dressed like Batman's been killing his guys. And he's like, that can't be real, right? Like, that can't be real. But now that he has this definitive video proof, thanks to his son setting up the camera there, because he thought it'd be cool to show Kick-Ass killed on, on the internet, he knows that this guy is real, and so they, they he sort of sets the plan in motion. And now this kind of, I guess, forces Cage's hand, and he tells Hit-Girl, you know, no more homework, it's time for Frank to go bye-bye. We don't have a choice anymore, like, your training is done, like, things need to happen now. Mindy, no more homework, baby doll. It's time for Frank D'Amico to go bye-bye. Yeah, everything is just escalated. It actually makes me question now, people don't know who he is, but they know of him now. They know that kick-ass, and then there's this other guy. It's kind of like this is what he doesn't want is like publicity, right? He wants to kind of fly under the radar. The idea is to now just skip to the end, right? <laughs> Let's just go like right after the bad guy, take care of him. And now it makes me wonder if he would sort of disappear after this because of the amount of heat that is on him. I was just thinking that like it's kind of like one more job, right? Like this is the, you know, the, right? big, the big score like this is the final thing and then maybe they'll clear out that safe room he'll get rid of the costume or sort of put it all in storage and just sort of resume a normal life after he finally does take out Frank D'Amico yeah that's feeling more and more likely now yeah, it's a possibility. I, I could agree with that. And so they're building, there's these cool shots, and we don't know what it is, and we won't know what it is until the very end of the movie. I don't know where he gets all this insane wealth from, maybe just from his art? I don't know, but Cage has enough money to buy this $300,000 something on the internet. We sort of get like a Quentin Tarantino trunk shot, where it's shot from up in the box onto Cage, and he's just like grinning at this thing. And we have no idea what it is, and before we see it, we know that it has Gatling guns, so we sort of know a little bit more about it, but it could really be anything. I mean, without sort of too specific spoilers, something like from the end of Breaking Bad or, you know, all, all these different things, the, the mind sort of races. And while I'm really glad that we finally do see what they bought, I think it's also really cool here that we don't know and sort of the possibilities of what's in that box. Like, not knowing is almost cooler than knowing. The Once again, with a timeline, we don't know how long this is taking, but we do know that every time they kill all the drug dealers, they are stealing the money. They had oh, enough, that's true. Hit Girl did have enough money in unmarked bills to be able to, like, just escape. I remember she said something around, like, a million dollars or three million dollars. They definitely have money to spend on frivolous, albeit awesome, things. Yeah. Yeah, and I love when Cage just says, add to shopping cart. Like, that is one <laughs> of my favorite Cage deliveries ever. Daddy, I think I found one. It's perfect, and they can deliver it in three days. Ah, uh, it's 
300,000 bucks. Can you think of anything else you'd rather spend it on? Oh my gosh. That is cool. Yeah. Add to shopping cart. Unfortunately, I, I mean, not for me, but I hear from other people, the mystique around the item sort of didn't live up to the hype. Really? Yeah, if you could believe that. For me, it did. I, watching it again this time, it worked even better. I, something else came to mind. But yeah, I was surprised too. Oh, man. I, I love what it is so much. Like, I mean, we'll get to that, but it's like the pinnacle. Even though Cage isn't involved in the scene, it's kind of peak Cage Club when that actually happens. This is the, the all-is-lost moment for the film, but also for Big Daddy's life that he tried trusted Kick-Ass, and Kick-Ass trusted Red Mist, and I really wonder if this one Big Daddy meets Red Mist, and he's sort of, like, accepting of him, and this is when Frank D'Amico's guys come in and shoot Hit-Girl, and she falls out the window and kidnap Kick-Ass and Big Daddy. Well, here you are, and Red Mist, too. Pleasure to meet you. Good to meet you, sir. Please, come in. After you. Hit girl, manners, honey. Hi, I'm Hit Girl. It's sad that he was sort of done in by something that he had no control over, but I guess it also goes against he's got these delusions of grandeur and he sort of feels like he's bulletproof and doesn't see that things can go wrong in front of his eyes because he isn't some master puppet master pulling all the strings like there are variables he can't account for. You know, I was like, how is Big Daddy not have Frank D'Amico's son under some type of surveillance at any point? But it just goes to show that he is kind of sloppy or he doesn't have everything covered, you know. And I thought that was interesting that amidst all of these superheroes sort of coming out onto the streets, like, he was able to trace Kick-Ass's secret identity, but he couldn't figure out who Red Mist was. So you're right, there is this sort of, let's be honest, you're kind of dressed more like a villain, you know? (laughs) Like, you've got this attitude. I don't know if I I should exactly like trust you immediately but kick-ass spoke for you and and he seems legit so by proxy yeah it's like i have to i have to accept you i i don't know if i would agree with that because he went through great lengths to find and and meet and talk to kick-ass and i feel like if he said oh there's another superhero i feel like he would have gone into it i feel like there would have been some kind of background check yeah as much as he trusts kick-ass he can't trust kick-ass's judgment Big Daddy has shown so much preparation in all other aspects. I feel like that's not characteristic of it. Maybe we just needed to see him a little more sidetracked or try and track down who Red Mist was at some point. But then, I I don't know, like the way I sort of thought about it was Chris has all this money and all these resources. So, you know, he's got the Mistmobile. He's got like his own website. It kind of feels like he'd be able to erase his trace at some point in some way. So, I don't know. I was just sort of going off that look and the hesitation in the performance. Yeah, it's not like you were dealing with another idiot kid like Kick-Ass. Like, he does have that sort of like pull and money and clout and everything that I think it would be harder for him to find information. Like, I, I do agree, Mike, that I think that we should have had him at least doing some kind of research on Red Mist, but it's also the point in the movie where, like, the momentum ball, like, we're building toward this final action scene, it, it's, it's begun. I think that in terms of pacing, it would have sort of been a disservice to the movie to show him, you know, even spending for a couple minutes. You know, it just, I think it would have been good in terms of Big Daddy's story, but I don't know if it would have done service to, to the movie. 
Or maybe even when they first went to shake his hands, he could have said, oh, I tried looking for your MySpace page, couldn't find it. It's funny, like, I don't think about it watching the film. Like, it never bothers me or comes up, and this is actually the only time I've really talked about that, about it. And now now it kind of bothers me, but I don't think it. this film suffers for it. I mean, things move along so quickly after this moment, and this moment alone moves along so fast, and there's such, you know, there's sort of like a good shock button to the end of this scene as it is. So as soon as I'm thinking about it, I'm forgetting about it. Frank D'Amico's men bring Kick-Ass and Big Daddy to this warehouse. They live stream on the internet, Kick-Ass Unmasked. As, as important as Big Daddy is to this story, and especially to this podcast, he's kind of like an afterthought. Like, Kick-Ass is this cultural phenomenon. Big Daddy's just there, too. So it's like, we're going to unmask Kick-Ass and, oh, yeah, also this other guy. So it's kind of sad. I know that Big Daddy wanted to fly under the radar, but it's kind of sad in terms of the public opinion, just, like, how little he matters. Like, he's doing these great things to take down this crime lord, and the public doesn't know about it, doesn't care about it. You know, Kick-Ass is just stopping street-level thugs from stealing cars. Big Daddy's doing something that actually is going to make a difference in the community, and just no one knows. Well, I feel like that alone is also sort of like a commentary on our society is we glorify the celebrity, like someone like Kick-Ass is akin to maybe like a Kardashian, whereas like, you know, the people doing the real work who should really be on the news and stuff never get their due, right? And that those are sort of like the big daddies out there that no one ever really knows about. I'd like to watch the movie with Kim Kardashian as cast as Kick-Ass. <laughs> So here we get, like, they're they're just beating the shit out of the two of them. The Frank D'Amico, like, they, they're they tied up, and they're just... They're, it's, it's kind of a cool, menacing villain scene. Like, these guys are the ultimate evil, and they're just punching them with brass knuckles and using kick-ass's batons to beat them up and just taking baseball bats to them. And then we get, in a movie full of great scenes, we get one of my favorite action scenes of all time, maybe my favorite action scene in the last ten years... When the hit girl shows up to save the day. It's just empowering. It's beautifully shot. When they have the strobe light coming later. I think it's flawless from start to finish. It's just, it's breathtaking how great this scene is. And I don't know if it was the writing or if it was Nick Cage's input. But when he's actually set on fire and he's shouting out what Hit Girl needs to do and she's remembering her lessons, the things that he says are all comic book references that all have meaning in the actual comics themselves. So when he, he shouts out Kryptonite, she blasts the strobe light and it blinds them. And then when he say, he goes, Robin! And she goes, Distraction! Because there was a Batman comic where uh, Robin needed to fight this Kung Fu master who was blind, and he u- and but he was still able to use like sound to figure out where Robin was, and he actually used a distraction that threw off his timing, and he was actually able to beat the Kung Fu master from using a distraction. So I think that was always kind of cool. I was like, oh, that's a really neat little tidbit. He was using comic book references in her real training to do those exact same things in the comics. Yeah, I love that so much. Like, it just adds to it, you know? It doesn't subtract. It doesn't overload it or anything. It actually deepens it for me. It makes me feel more for this rescue scene, you know? When he's yelling Robin's revenge, and it's like the last thing he'll almost ever say, and, and she, like, it clicks in her head what to do. And all this stuff, like, the night vision is amazing. It's just it's just awesome how she's just like, it's, they don't know where she is. She knows where they are. The strobe effect, her jump kicks, and, like, all, all that crazy stuff. The fire the Lucho Libre masks, like, everything the, is just very awesome here. The darkness is also really cool because we all know what's happening to Kick-Ass, but when the lights go out, 
Nobody knows what's happening. So the characters right. don't know, but we as an audience, if you haven't seen the movie, don't know what's happening. And then when people start dying, it's like, oh, she's back. She's not dead. <laughs> yes. I don't want to say that she saves the day because she doesn't really. I mean, she saves kick-ass, but they lit Big Daddy on fire and he's going to succumb to his burns and he's going to die. So she doesn't really save the day, but before he does go, you know, they have this final tender heart-to-heart. He's so proud of her. Even though she wasn't able to save him, the baby bird is ready to leave the nest, right? That she's learned everything, that she can take care of herself. Even though she's a little girl, like, she just killed all these guys. Like, everything that they've been working on these last six months, year, two years, like, she's finally ready. Like, she's done it. Good job. I'm so proud of you, Gabby Troll. Are you okay? Getting shot, Daddy, it hurt a lot more than when you did it. That's because I use the velocity rounds, child. You're the kind of study in the world. No, I just... I love you. Uh, yeah, it almost feels a little like when a dad sees his daughter's recital or something like the holiday recital, and it's like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> like, look what you did. You did everything right. You know, you're the best you can be. And it's, I mean, it's definitely like a surreal environment for this scene to be happening in, but it's just like a beautiful moment, and they really sell it really well, too. Also thinking this is the second time that Cage has had his face fried. Uh, I was thinking back to Deadfall. Yeah. He got it caught in the French fryer. <laughs> this is a, a little bit more of a touching, beautiful moment than that one. <laughs> but I mean, it's still another on-screen death for Cage. And this is kind of where the story ends, that Big Daddy is dead, but Hit Girl now needs to avenge him. And so she and Kick-Ass go and team up to go take out Frank D'Amico. Like, it's it's kind of like, you know, a Hydra. Like, they've cut off all the heads except for the one head. Now they have to go take care of the last guy. Every time Hit Girl's on screen, it's just amazing. Apparently, every studio before they got to Lionsgate that they sh- they pitched this to, that everybody said, "We'll do this movie if you drop Hit Girl or if you make Hit Girl eighteen or nineteen years old." They just stuck to their guns, and I'm so glad they did because, like, without Hit Girl, this movie is not the movie. Like, I don't even know if it's a movie that like people really care about because she's just so great, and every time she's on screen, it's great. But at the end here, when her when she's just running down that hallway, just stabbing guys to Joan Jett's bad reputation, like it is perfect. And I mean, now the only the only person who can sort of one up Hit Girl with that song is Ronda Rousey. Like that song and just badass women, it's just amazing. It's perfection. I would totally agree with that. And honestly, they would have to probably rewrite the movie because I don't think this movie would make sense with Hit Girl being eighteen or nineteen years old. By that point, she's a grown woman. She's not a girl anymore. The fact that it's a little girl doing all of this awesome kick-ass things is the most important aspect of it. That a nineteen-year-old wouldn't make sense doing this. It, it the movie wouldn't make sense. Yeah, and I don't even think you could make her a boy like hit boy and i don't think you could tell the story without her either because she plays off of the dave character as thematically she needs to be here as a piece of the puzzle i feel all of her action sequences are just amazing like they're all great action sequences like you know i'd give my left arm for one of these in like any (laughs) other movie but in this movie we get all of them and and he even takes a moment at the end i love her girl scout wild west moment toward the end when she's infiltrating the building where it's just like this 
Sergio Leone score and she's <laughs> like taking out these guys in the lobby. It's great. And then as she's doing all this, Frank D'Amico's kind of like number one bodyguard and also sort of, I guess, Red Mist, but like the family bodyguard who scared Kick-Ass away in the beginning of the movie from approaching the the, guy, the kid who had become Red Mist. He goes to grab the bazooka to take out Hit Girl and then we finally get the payoff of what was in that crate as we hear Elvis singing, you know, glory, glory, hallelujah play, the best use of Elvis in any movie, and a perfect sort of wrap-up for Cage Club in that Elvis has been in so many movies, and even though it's not Cage and Elvis here, it's still Elvis in a Cage movie, and Kick-Ass just ascends on a jetpack with Gatling guns, takes out everybody, and it is great. I think he would have gone deaf if Gatling guns were going off that close to his head. (laughs) Well, he's a superhero. He has super hearing. (laughs) What I really loved about this, this time, in theaters when I saw this, I think I I might have actually started applauding. (laughs) I'm not even joking. But this time watching it, what clicked in my head was he is flying. You know, like, what's the one thing the coolest superheroes can kind of do? Like, Superman can fly, you know? And this is is how you get your everyday ordinary person to fly. And I thought that was great. And then, like, the Gatling guns almost just felt like his laser eye vision to a degree to me so this time around that that's where my mind wandered to and it made me laugh for all new reasons it's the beginning of the end for frank d'amico and they take out the rest of the guys and then they sort of overthrow this criminal enterprise sort of setting up red mist for revenge in the sequel now that he has an origin story with a dead parent it's the end of kick-ass even though big daddy dies with 20 minutes left to go in the movie sort of his presence is felt throughout the rest of it it's what motivates hit girl and sort of made her who she is yeah, I love the one moment in the final battles. Like, I love how Hit Girl is taking on the dad, the big D'Amico, and he's like a karate guy and everything. And, and there's one moment where he says something like, if only you were my son or something, or if I had a son like you. It just, like, at that moment made that character complete for me. <laughs> it's just something, like, you look at the son that he actually does have and is like, yeah, like, he kind of ran around in leather spandex for It's like, I don't know if he's so proud of that kid. It was just sort of like this extra sort of irony that I enjoyed there. And I also really loved him getting shot with the rocket at the end, you know? Like, you put a rocket launcher on the wall in your film, like, I'm so thankful that they ended up using it and actually killing the villain with it. Chekhov's rocket launcher. We have a couple little Cage connections here, a little bit of trivia. Early in the movie, Cage is quizzing Hit Girl about weapons, about guns, about knives, and then he says, you know, what's John Woo's first movie? And I really feel like he should have said, what are John Woo's two best movies? <laughs> which obviously would have been face-off and wind talkers. The only other thing I have in terms of, aside, uh, aside from awards, is that apparently both Daniel Craig and Mark Wahlberg were considered to play Big Daddy before they cast Nicolas Cage. I don't want this movie with either of them. Why not Mark Wahlberg? He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy, but we're not doing Wahlberg Club. I mean, Nicolas Cage is the <laughs> coolest guy. Can we do it next, then? <laughs> <laughs> One day, perhaps. I just couldn't imagine what he would have sounded like. You know, we get this great sort of, you know, Batman 66 impression from Nick Cage. Like, I just don't need a, a departed-sounding big daddy, you know? like I'm not a cop! I'm not a goddamn caught. Well, we're going to get that, I guess, probably with the new Batman with Ben Affleck. I mean, Ben Affleck and Mark Wahlberg are kind of similar in terms of affectation, so maybe we'll get it there. This movie got a bunch of awards. It won four Golden Schmoes, a very important award ceremony to Cage Club. Best Supporting Actress of the Year, Breakthrough Performance of the Year, Coolest Character of the Year, and Best Line of the Year, all going to Chloe Grace Moretz. Cage was nominated for Scream Awards for Best Superhero and Best Fantasy Actor. 
He was nominated for a Teen Choice Award. All sorts of things. I mean, they he, he sort of got a little bit of love. Michael Rispoli is back from Snake Eyes and the Weatherman. Hmm. And Elizabeth McGovern, back all the way back from Racing with the Moon, wow. another bowling movie. Was she the came mother? Back as, no, she was the teacher. Oh, my goodness. No, no, no. Maybe she, no, she was the mother. I'm sorry. Okay. She was the mother. All right. Wait, so yes. in Racing with the Moon, she's the love interest? Yeah. Whoa, that's going way back. Yeah, it's from like 84. Whew. NP, any last things, any last thoughts about this movie that we didn't cover in terms of, you know, Big Daddy or Hit Girl or anything? No, I think we covered all the important aspects of it. It's a great movie. I, I <laughs> love this movie. I, I'm so glad that I got the opportunity to, like, talk about this movie just because nobody ever likes this movie as much as I do, and I'm just glad to be able to share this experience. <laughs> well, this movie's amazing. Mike, any last thoughts anything we didn't cover? I think we pretty much covered it all. I just mentioned, I told you last night, I was kind of like not really looking forward to watching this again because I've just seen it so much because I loved it so much. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to sit down and watch it tonight, but I put it on and I just sank right back into it. And like I've been talking about, like I found new things to enjoy even this many viewings. So yeah, definitely got to recommend this one. Definitely. If you, I mean, if you've listened this far in Cage Club, you probably have seen Kick-Ass before, but if you haven't, go make sure you go see it. Um, I'm pretty sure it's easy to find just about anywhere. NP, thank you for joining us. I know you I know you love talking about this movie, and we love talking about it with you. Uh, thank you very much, man. I appreciate the opportunity. So for all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, all things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that's Adam NP, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Shows over, motherfuckers. <laughs>